0: Section 50 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M.P. Hill Indulgences Erroneous Views 1. Indulgences are an easy means of obtaining pardon for sin, even future sin, without repentance they have been applied to the releasing of souls from purgatory and for that purpose they might be bought for money two in theory indulgence is always presupposed repentance but as the business was managed in germany before the Reformation, it amounted in the popular apprehension to a sale of absolution from guilt or to the ransom of deceased friends from purgatory for money Fisher, outlines of universal history page 397 the truth an indulgence is neither a pardon for sin nor a license to commit sin It supposes repentance for sin. In this matter, the practical belief of Catholics has never been at variance with the theory as set forth by Catholic theologians. Old prejudices die hard, especially in matters religious, but the collapse of the old prejudice against indulgences has already begun. The two sets of objections placed at the head of this article, which are not an entire agreement, are intended to exhibit the turn of the tide of popular opinion regarding indulgences. Our opponents are gradually getting nearer the truth. The author of a popular textbook informs us that indulgences are not, in theory, a pardon for sin, but that the people of Germany once thought they were and bought them as such. Let us hope that the editor of some future edition of the book will advance a step further, and tell his readers that indulgences neither are nor have thought to be anything but remission of temporal punishment after repentance. What is meant by an indulgence? An indulgence is the remission or cancelling of the temporal punishment due to sin after the sin itself has been forgiven. The punishment is to be suffered either in this life or the next. In this life it may take the form either of voluntary penance or of penance enjoined by the Church. It supposes sincere repentance for sin, and in many cases is given only on condition of contrite confession. Such is the technical and ecclesiastical meaning of the word indulgence. It differs somewhat from its ordinary meaning. In common parlance it means an easy, yielding, and forbearing disposition toward those who are subject to us, and does not necessarily imply repentance or atonement for offences committed. In ecclesiastical usage, it signifies a favor granted to those who are already friends of God by the possession of sanctifying grace. A soul stained by grievous sin must first be reconciled with God before receiving any such favors at the hands of the Church. The definition we have given implies that even when God forgives sin, there may still be some atonement to be made for it. The idea is not a familiar one to persons outside the Catholic Church, but it is nonetheless scriptural. Moses, though a friend of God and forgiven his transgression, was nevertheless punished by not being permitted to enter the promised land. David was pardoned by the Lord for his double crime of adultery and murder. The Lord also hath taken away thy sin, the prophet Nathan told him. Nevertheless, he added, because thou hast given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, for this thing the child that is born to thee shall surely die. A plain case of punishment inflicted after the forgiveness of the sin, Now it is precisely the cancelling of such punishment that is meant by an indulgence. But is it possible that the church has it in her power to release the sinner from such atonement for his sin? Such power has undoubtedly been conferred upon the church. The idea of a church that wields the power of the keys has unfortunately faded away from the minds of our separated brethren, and yet it stands out in strong relief upon the pages of Scripture. Whatsoever thou shalt loose upon the earth, it shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, verse 19. These words were addressed to Peter, but the same powers were afterward conferred on all the apostles. Matthew, chapter 18, verse 18. By reason of their generality, we must understand these words to refer to every bond or obstacle which bars heaven against the faithful, consequently to the outstanding temporal punishment of sin. Even greater power than this was given the apostles. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. John, chapter 20, verse 23 what wonder then if possessing a power that can open or close the gates of heaven to sinners for all eternity they should possess the lesser power of retaining or remitting the mere temporal punishment due to sin objection the remission of such temporal punishment by indulgences should be a comparatively rare occurrence and should not be granted on such easy terms as they are in the church in rome punishment becomes a byword when it is frequently cancelled on merciful considerations Answer: indulgences are frequently given it is true but not on such easy terms as fancied Some of the smaller indulgences are granted for the recitation of short prayers, but the greater the indulgence, the greater the exaction. In all cases, good works of one kind or another are enjoined, such as fasting, almsgiving, confession, communion, visits to churches, pilgrimages, and the like. But even supposing that all indulgences were granted on the easiest possible conditions, it must be remembered that, though punishment is demanded by justice and may be salutary to the penitent, nevertheless there may be something better than a punishment, a prudent parent will easily cancel a child's punishment when such indulgence will lead to the child's improvement now there is one thing the church never loses sight of in granting indulgences the spiritual good of those who receive them as a matter of fact the discipline of indulgences produces a great increase of piety among the faithful the good works required bring the sinner nearer to god prayer confession of sins the receiving of the bread of life anticipate the salutary effects of punishment and render the soul more pleasing to god the power conferred on the apostles and consequently on their successors was exercised by them from the beginning of the history of the church. Witness St Paul's treatment of the incestuous Corinthian, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 3 to 5 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. In the name and by the power of Jesus Christ he punishes the sinner, but afterward as repenting the person of Christ he remits the punishment. The binding and the loosing were evidently regarded by St Paul as ratified in heaven. In the early days of the Church, it was customary to impose severe public penances for the more grievous offenses. These canonical penances might last for years. They were intended partly as an expiation for sins committed, and on account of their being imposed by the binding powers of the Church, they were regarded as though imposed by God himself, and when the Church exercised her power of loosing by remitting a portion of the punishment, or, in other words, granted an indulgence, the punishment was believed to have been canceled by God himself. The power of binding and loosing given by God would be recognized by Him in its actual exercise. In times of persecution, those who were imprisoned for the faith, especially those who were about to suffer martyrdom, could obtain for well disposed penitents a shortening of their terms of canonical penance. St. Cyprian bears express testimony to the belief that such favors bestowed by the Church were ratified by God. In one of his epistles, he expresses confidence in the belief that sinners who are on their deathbeds and have not had time to complete their canonical penances are helped before God and will come to him in peace in consequence of the indulgences of the church granted at the solicitation of the martyrs. These writings generally of St. Cyprian, Tertullian, and many other authorities of the first five centuries throw a clear light upon the belief and practice of the early church in the matter of indulgences. Both the belief and the practice were the same then as they are today. As to the application of indulgences to the souls in purgatory, it must be noted that the Church lays no claim to jurisdiction over the souls in the other life. Hence, if indulgences are applied to the souls of the dead, it is only per modem suffragi, i.e. by way of petition. The Church presents her offering or ransom to the Almighty, and it is doubtless accepted, though we cannot know with certainty how much any particular soul is benefited by it. And now a word or two about the abuses, real and imaginary, in the actual administration of indulgences, out of which the adversaries of the Catholic faith have made so much capital, especially the alleged traffic in indulgences which roused Luther's ire and was the immediate occasion of his onslaught upon the Church. In the first place, there is nothing too sacred to be free from abuse, but the abuse of a good thing furnishes no argument against its proper use. Just before Luther's revolt, there were undoubtedly some abuses connected with the preaching of a notable indulgence published by Pope Leo X, but they were committed contrary to the explicit instructions of ecclesiastical superiors, and they were condemned in that day, as they are condemned today, by all right-minded Catholics. But, granting that there were certain extravagances attending the preaching of this indulgence, we must deny that they were such as to justify the sweeping assertions placed at the head of this article, and yet these are typical of the attacks made upon Catholic doctrine and practice. Recent historians have thrown some light upon the facts of the case. In the year 1514, Pope Leo X published an indulgence to aid in the completing of St. Peter's Church in Rome. It was to be gained partly by the performance of some of the usual good works, confession, communion, and a fast. But the well-to-do were to add an alms for completion of the Church, while the poor, instead of giving an alms, were to say extra prayers the indulgence obtained under the grant might be applied, or transferred, to the souls in purgatory. There is nothing absurd or unchristian in supposing that God deigns to have regard to good works, including almsgiving, performed for the benefit of souls in the other life, only we cannot know, as we have said, whether or how much any particular soul is benefited by such acts. Nevertheless, there was at that time an opinion held by some theologians that a plenary indulgence applied to a particular soul was certain to release it from the fires of purgatory, It is easy to imagine how a doctrine like this might be exploited by a zealous preacher whose heart was set upon large money returns. That it was so exploited, at least by some to a certain extent, we must frankly admit as a historical fact, though we are not bound to accept the traditional Protestant account of the matter, which is inspired by prejudice against the Church. For well nigh four centuries Protestants have made merry over real or imaginary extravagances in the preaching of indulgences in the 16th century. Why, in the name of justice, Why this constant taunting of us Catholics for such religious abuses of the Middle Ages? Why the constant endeavor to shame us and our Catholic ancestors? Were they not equally the ancestors of our Protestant antagonists? And do not we as well as our separated brethren condemn these abuses? The real difference between our Protestant friends and ourselves is that we have discarded the abuses but clung to the old faith, while they have rejected all in the lump the fact of primary importance is that no abuse connected with indulgences in the sixteenth century or indeed any century ever met with the approval of the church and that every such abuse was visited with express condemnation the utterances of cardinal Cajetan, says jansen prove that the sentiments of the preachers in question were not those of rome the preachers says Cajetan, came forward in the name of the church in so far as they proclaimed the teaching of christ and the church But if they teach out of their own heads and for their own profit, things about which they have no knowledge, they cannot pass as representatives of the Church, and one cannot wonder that in such cases they fall into error. And yet it was such accidental abuses, which never had the Church's approval, that furnished a pretext for the unspeakable scandal of a revolt against the Church itself by the founder of Protestantism. Efforts to correct the abuses in question had been made before Luther's time the church ultimately succeeded as only the true church can succeed in ridding itself of any such ugly excrescence the catholic church is indeed the only religious body possessing the power of correcting abuses within its pale without disrupting itself it is not true then that indulgences are an easy mean of obtaining pardon for sin they have nothing to do with the guilt of sin and the remission of temporal punishment due to sin cannot be obtained except by the contrite of heart as to the statement that at least in the popular estimation indulgences were a sale of absolution from guilt Such assertions are easily made, but where is the proof? When was there a time in the history of the Church when the essential conditions for obtaining specific indulgences were not clearly set forth in official documents addressed to the multitude? These conditions always included interior dispositions, especially sorrow for sin. As to the alleged popular persuasion that particular souls in purgatory could be ransomed by money, is the possible effect upon the ignorant of indiscreet preaching by a certain class of preachers on a certain occasion? to be erected into evidence of a general popular perversion of belief? End of section 50. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.